Welcome to the GSI Briefing Podcast. I am your host, Regina Ajia, President of the Garden State Initiative. In this special edition of the GSI Briefing, we're presenting remarks delivered by Dan Clifton at GSI's annual Economic Policy Forum held earlier this month. As partner and head of policy research for Strategus Securities, Dan evaluates how changes in public policy impact our economy and financial markets for institutional investors. Dan originally hails from New Jersey and was a veteran of our state's political scene before moving to our nation's capital. In his remarks, a recurring theme was how the unprecedented economic volatility we're currently facing is also creating political volatility. So buckle up. I anticipate you'll find his presentation as engaging and enlightening as our Policy Forum audience did. Now here's Dan Clifton. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Gordon State Initiative. And I want to thank Regina. I love New Jersey. Best time of my life was working in the New Jersey government, uh, governor's office, Casino Reinvestment Development Authority, Port Authority in New York and New Jersey. A really good time doing it. Uh, what I do is I evaluate public policy and how it impacts the global economy and financial markets. And so I looked at today's speakers, very august group of speakers, and said, how can I add value to this great group? And what I want to do is put in, into context what I think is happening globally, how uh, economically, how that then slides into the policy arena, and then what that means for New Jersey and what other states are doing on public policy. I want to just start off by saying I believe that we're going through a 50-year transformational period where we're going from one that was a low inflation environment to a longer sustainable high inflation environment. That's going to create big challenges for state and local governments moving forward. And so the old the model that we've been using for the last 30 or 40 years is likely going to have to shift and it's going to force states to have to become more competitive as we start to think about this high inflation environment. Let me start with our big thesis. This has been our thesis for 10 years. Economic volatility is creating political volatility. This is a simple chart of the trend growth rate of the U.S. economy in red. On average, the U.S. economy had grown by about 3% per year, and that was true for about 50 years. And then in 2008, at the financial crisis, the U.S. economy transitioned from a 3% to a 2% growth rate and has largely stayed there for the last 14 years. So you say, Dan, what's the difference between three and two? It doesn't sound like a lot. It's $4.4 trillion. The average American household is $40,000 poorer because we are not growing at that same rate that we were growing before the financial crisis. And it's this economic volatility that's creating political volatility. Now, voters are not sitting at the Bureau of Economic Analysis website saying, oh, we only grew at two. Let me be mad at Obama but inherently voters know that their standard of living isn't rising as fast. How do we know this? We've had eight federal elections since the financial crisis and the party in power was removed in seven of those eight elections. We've gone back all the way to the post-Civil War period and we've never had this level of political volatility in the United States. So think about this, if you're a business, one year your corporate tax rate is 21%, two or four years later, it could be going up to 28%. Or you're a healthcare company and we're passing the Affordable Care Act, and then two or four years later, it's trying to be repealed. So it's that political volatility that's creating policy uncertainty, and it's limiting the ability for new investment and the ability to grow the economy at its full potential. 
This was compounded by 2020's, what I call four transformational events. Transformational events make policy changes much bigger. What were those four events? A recession, a pandemic, mass protests, and a presidential election. All four of these events bring massive change. We went back a hundred years and said, have these ever happened in or four events happened in one year? And the answer was no. We had three of these happen in 1968, but we've never had four of these events happen at one time. And why this is important, if you think about 1968, 1969, the last time we had these transformational events, we had inflation, war, wage and price controls, the OPEC oil embargo, Bretton Woods financial system ended. We started doing national security reviews of investment. We even removed the sitting president of the United States. My point here is that when you go through these types of events, you start getting very, what I would call high impact, long tail policy events that can happen. And I just think it's very interesting that today's S&P 500, which has been very weak, is trending very similar to 1970, as you saw those transformational events begin to form. Today, our challenge is that we have three legs of the stool, monetary, fiscal, and geopolitical. If one of those events gets upended in one year, it's a big deal. All three of them are being upended in this year. The biggest geopolitical event of the year was Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin standing up on stage and saying they are gonna change the world order. This is such a big event that Finland wants to join NATO. These are not normal events that are going on. So we're going back into the pre-Cold War period. The next chart is inflation and interest rates. There has never been a divergence between inflation and interest rates at the level that we're seeing today. Interest rates are gonna go higher. I met with a state treasurer two weeks ago in a different state, and he was telling me how his bond financing costs has already started to show up in their revenue numbers. So you are going to start to see this show up in the state budget. And just to think about it, for 40 years, the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates to prevent inflation. Today, they're raising interest rates to get inflation out of the system. It's a lot harder to do, and it takes a lot longer to do than we've previously seen in the past before. And so what you see now is that inflation is driving the political environment. We look at polling data where inflation is a much bigger impact to voters than unemployment. And as I like to remind anybody who's in power, there is a very strong 50-year relationship between the price of gasoline and a president's approval rating that cuts across Republicans, Democrats, or anything else. And so when we talk about what's happening at the state level, the biggest issue right now is how do you provide relief for gasoline prices, rebate checks, gasoline tax cuts, because this is what's driving the political environment. At the federal level, the Democrats are going to take one last shot at trying to pass a major fiscal bill. They believe that raising taxes will reduce the deficit and then lead to less inflation. We tried this in 1968. There's that 1968 parallel again. And inflation accelerated after we raised the tax increases. And in 1993, there was an assumption that if we raised income taxes, the Fed wouldn't have to raise rates as much. And in fact, we raised taxes and the Fed still had to raise rates pretty aggressively. So I really don't believe that raising uh, taxes is going to impact inflation. But why that's important is that if we raise income taxes at the very high level and not have state and local tax deduction relief, you are going to spread out the out migration of wealthy residents. 
this tax increase, if it goes through, which I would put at a 40% probability, would lead to a 60% effective tax rate in New York and California. And I just want to give you this one statistic. Palm Beach County in 2020 had more domestic income migration into that county than 47 other states in the United States, one county. Manhattan lost $14 billion in 2020 of residents leaving on net. That was more than 47 states uh, in, their, in their terms of how much money they lost. So you are seeing a very accelerated out-migration of residents. And I believe that this will work to benefit New Jersey if New Jersey is able to make the right policy changes. What we saw in 2020 is that New Jersey lost less money through income migration than they normally do. And that's largely New York people moving into New Jersey, which is fascinating. Connecticut also benefited from this structure. And the reason why I titled this, and I think I saw Mark Pfeiffer walk by before, but we used to talk a lot in the governor's office 25 years ago about New Jersey being able to benefit from New York. Let them make the mistakes and let's attract the capital from them moving forward. What I did here, I just put this in just for fun. We were able now, we can do income, we can do counties. We put where the money is flowing into New Jersey and out of New Jersey. And man, the Jersey Shore is the most attractive place. So the four shore counties are where the money's coming in. And then money is leaving uh, in just about every other county. So my sense is that that's, uh, that's people moving into Monmouth, Ocean, and, uh, and Atlantic County itself. And I'll just show you this. I call it the race for capital. These are the high tax states income migration and the low tax states income migration during the pandemic. In 2021, high tax states were losing 76% more income compared to their pre-pandemic level. COVID and work from home had a much bigger impact on that income migration than the loss of the state and local tax deduction. And so what this is doing is it's forcing states to be able to come together and say, how do we start attracting this capital moving forward? I write reports calling, what a great time to be a state treasurer. You know, like these are things that I never thought I would be writing, but states are in the best fiscal shape of our life. The state and local budget surplus today is the highest level it's been since 1944. And it's the first budget surplus in the aggregate that we've had since 1978. So states have a lot of money. They have a lot of money because tax revenues are growing about 29% and because the federal government paid all of the COVID bills at, at healthcare and education, state and local spending as a percentage of the economy today is at its lowest level since 1969. So a lot more revenue, a lot less spending, and California today has a $95 billion budget surplus. That's larger than 46 other states' total budget, just to put that in context, okay? So states have a real opportunity here to use this in a way and not waste it but use it in a way to make structural reforms. I would caution everybody in this room, as somebody who worked in two states, which had a lot of capital gains revenue, this could be fool's gold. In 2021, there was a pulling forward of income. People thought that taxes were gonna go up, so they pulled forward their income. That became taxable in April. Now stocks are down, and there's a very strong correlation between the stock market and how much revenue is being collected. Additionally, we handed out billions in checks. People went out and spent that money. It was very good for sales tax revenue. Those revenue provisions are going to slow over the next 12 to 18 months. So creating permanent programs with that spending 
will likely lead to structural deficits in the future, like what happened during the financial crisis and what happened uh, going, into, um, going into previous recessions. So what are states doing, which is you know, me burying the lead. This is what Regina asked me to speak about today. States are cutting taxes. We are starting to see a 1990-type-like revolution in terms of state tax cuts. By the way, states raised taxes two years ago are trying, now trying to cut taxes. It's fascinating. But what you are seeing is states that have income taxes that want to attract the capital that's going into Florida and Texas are now moving to flat taxes. So you had four states that moved to a flat tax, Arizona, Iowa, Georgia, and Mississippi this year. You have 18 other states flattening out but reducing their graduated income tax this year. The biggest tax change, though, is on the gasoline tax, given how much gasoline prices are starting to erode incomes of working Americans. And that tax increase, those tax cuts, there's about 22 states right now that are trying to either cut the gasoline tax or provide some sort of rebate for consumers to overcome the cost of inflation. So this is a pretty big change on the margin. We've only seen one other time period like this in terms of those state tax cuts, and that was during the tech bubble boom. You are also seeing sizable increases in infrastructure spending. You look at, just look at infrastructure stocks, they're really starting to break out. You got all that federal money coming in. That means that states could just match it, but they're, 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 and they're doing it, which is interesting to us. Of course, I would love to see the money put into the pension system because this really is a gift and you use that as a one-time dividend to shore up your future finances overall. Unfortunately, I can't tell you that there's a lot of states that are actually doing that because doing that doesn't get you many votes uh, from elected officials itself. So when I pull all that together, what we see is a global race for capital amongst the states. Florida got $37 billion of new income over the last two years. You, I'm sure you're going to see that in the 2024 presidential campaign from the governor of Florida saying this. And other states are now slowly responding and saying we have to compete with what Florida is doing and build a more competitive cost structure overall. I think that this is going to become a much bigger issue as you start to see elevated inflation. And when I say elevated inflation, I don't mean the 8% we see today, but we're going to be looking at 3 3.5% inflation over the next few years. And that's going to force the cross structure of state and local governments to start getting under control, given their debt costs are going to go up and their employee costs are going to go up. So I'll leave it there, see if anybody has any questions, and then let you get on to your excellent panel discussions today on job growth and in uh, energy and different industries. Thank you for having me today. The GSI Briefing is produced by the Garden State Initiative. For more information about GSI, visit us at GardenStateInitiative.org and be sure to follow us on social media. Don't forget to subscribe to the GSI Briefing on the podcast platform of your choice. And please leave us a good rating. This is Regina Agia, and thank you for listening.